Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Ippolit Netagurirwa, a Rwandan artist and activist and founder of Be The Peace. Ippo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Emma. So Ippo, you were born in Rwanda. What sort of childhood did you have for the first seven years of your life? Uh, yeah, I was born in, in Rwanda, as you said, and uh, my life at early childhood was okay. And, you know, it was a joyful life for a kid with playing with other kids and, you know, with no, always hoping my parents and siblings were my protectors, um, didn't, you know, the, the, we were modest family. My parents were, we would say, uh, not earning any money. They were farmers with no big land. We were they used to work for other people and get some money from working for them. But it, it was for me, you know, I found what to eat. Uh, we didn't live in city. We didn't live in town. We were in a very rural area in in Rwanda in southwest, uh, somewhere called Mibirizi, and uh, so it it was it was okay. It was good life, uh, played with other kids, and it was life with joy, I have to say, as a kid. And then in 1994, when you were seven years old, the genocide happened, and your world was turned upside down. Yes, uh, that whole uh, life and, and joy that I had was stopped in 1994 when the genocide against the Tutsi started. And we were Tutsis, and and we had to be killed by uh, by the Hutu. I mean, we didn't have to, but the government has taught for so long that we deserved to be killed, and then that was the beginning of the genocide. And that's when I started uh, living a different life, um, uh, hiding in 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 bushes and going from uh, one household being rejected by the neighbors that I knew that they used to know that they were like parents like mine and seeing people becoming killers and and watching the parents men I knew they were that I, I thought they were good people who started doing the killings and those are the people who made me a child slave with um dozen of other children we used to go and fetch water and find wood for the for their cooking after they were killing they, they were keeping us to kill us after you know after they have killed others and um you know so what happened to your family well my family um uh, my dad was killed and um um uh, we never even had a chance to bury him and uh he was fed to the dogs to eat, and um, my luckily my my siblings um, survived by a miracle. Um, my siblings survived, and and my mom also still is still alive. So we were lucky. But my siblings, my two sisters who lived not with us, uh, came late, late after, uh, wandering around and hopping, uh, trying to see if there was 
anybody survived, who survived from the family. And that was the time when I, um, I came within that story. I also went to a refugee camp and lived there with my brother and my sister. And we didn't know where others were and if they survived or if they were still alive. So stayed for more than about seven months in, in the refugee camp. No, it was, uh, yeah, more than about seven months in the refugee camp because the genocide went on for three months. But then after the genocide was stopped, it took long. It took other months for the for the government to bring us back, to take us back in our villages. So, yeah, it was it was a life of miserable and, and at the age of seven and, you know, walking around and seeing people you I knew that were my my neighbors being killed. And, you know, I, I so seeing people or hearing women being raped and children being killed very close to where I was hiding sometimes. Um, that was the life for uh, about uh, three months and, and, and even in refugee camp at, at that age. That was the shock, yeah. Oh, it's absolutely horrific. And at that age, did you, did you think of how you might get revenge for those who had murdered your family and destroyed your life? Not necessarily during the genocide, because in that time of the genocide, the only hope actually was to to die and, and leave the misery behind because there wasn't anything pleasant. And, and that was what was on mine. Every second would be the, the time of, of, of my death. And everyone could be a reason for my death. Everything. So in the genocide, you do anything to survive, but you do nothing to survive, really. So the only idea during that time, those periods were just like to be, you know, to survive or run or it wasn't anything after that because we didn't hope that it will finish. But then after finishing, after coming back from the refugee camp, that's when I, um, it was just a few months because it was the following year where I went, I had to start my primary school. And that's when actually everything then started uh, coming back and nightmares and memories, everything in class would remind me of everything else and remembering the screaming voices of people I've seen killed. And and I didn't speak very often for but a long time. Uh, in, in my first three years of, of uh, school, didn't really speak a lot. And so through there, that's... I was trying to make sense then after uh, to make sense of what I have seen. And that's when I started saying, you know, looking at a person and feeling hmm, he's, he might be a bad person or might be uh, one of the people who killed. And, and then I, 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 I wasn't looking at people as good people. And so I wanted to tell a story and tell them how I felt about them, about everyone. And that's when the, teacher helped me to create the theater club we did and and i used to tell the poems and stories at my primary school uh which was even hard because the any friendship that brought people together at that time wasn't supposed by it wasn't supported by any family either survivors or perpetrators but when we started performing people were like oh good so they started seeing the power of performing art 
so yeah, I was lucky, and I graduated from high school, from primary school to go to secondary school. But that time, um, so I went, did my three years of secondary school. Then I had to be transferred to another school to start my uh, primary education, primary teaching as a professional to be trained in that. I was, I faced a very challenging time that time because I wasn't able to find, my family wasn't able to find transportation for me to go to school. <clears throat> so how old were you at this stage? About 15, yeah, 15, 15 turning to 16. And at that young age, it was really, you know, I, I still had anger, but all my anger and revenge. When I thought about revenge or anger, I was thinking about, um, about uh, education because I was succeeding and I, I thought I would be a leader. I thought I would be, you know, uh, someone who would change things. But then when I stopped going to school, then the frustration came to surface and then told me, you know, and I was feeling that the only path I had for success was to do revenge. And, you know, I was a teenager and feeling strong and ambitious. And I started thinking of ways I could be a killer and do revenge, whether killing people. But then I felt also I was still a bit not skilled in killing. So I tried all means and um, tried to go in the military. They stopped me because I was too young. Um, then I went to, I used to go to where my dad was killed, very close to the church. Luckily, a, prof, a, a medical doctor who was from Congo, and Congo, this is 2005, yeah, 2004, 2004. In 2002, that's when Congo finished the war between Rwanda and Congo. And a, medical Congolese, a Congolese medical doctor saw me and helped me to go back to school. And that was critical because I, it challenged my idea of everyone was bad to see a person from a country which, is fighting, which was just fighting with our hours to help me to go back to school. And went to school hoping to, you know, to become... Um, I, I was challenged. I was. I didn't know what to do. Whether I would kill or whether I didn't give up. Whether I gave up on killing. So, went to school. Arrived to school. Got, um, you know, I got introduced to to sociology and the sociology. They said sociology was interactions of people. Was the study of interactions of people. <laughs> then I said. To myself, well, that's great. If I know how people interact, I will be a very good killer. So you still had revenge on your mind when you were studying sociology? Yeah, yeah. But then having that idea, you know, when you had, I had that bad force that was pushing me to say, you know, you, you're going to be a good killer and do revenge. And I thought that was the best. Incited by the opportunity that I missed, that I, you know, that I missed to continue going back to school and then when I went it didn't change but through my studies we continue we we had uh, studies of sociology how people into how people and how society how people live together and how they influence each other and how the leadership and administration and everyone and interpersonally how the cultural um, aspects influence us to be who we are and how the children are influenced from their birth, I mean, from, their, from when they are conceived and how they develop 
who they you know how they they are good and how they they what we do as parents affects and how the school everything how the environment affects the people and you know at some point i came to know that you know then we people who were killing us i knew as friends as neighbors weren't necessarily born bad that's what the studies of psychology and sociology told me and taught me and i realized that and then i said well i'm not becoming any better than them if i'm going to do that and i thought about you know what they did and i, I you know i realized that what was killing us in a genocide wasn't just wasn't just the people i, I could see blood and, and fresh and no i i thought it was i knew that it was that ideology that they have learned and i went back i started asking myself questions and um and um yeah this is very death. rational you have been through such hell how did you find the will to forgive to reconcile well it's it's i i i go back and i think it was more about me trying to find the solution to the problems i have seen so the suffering i've i've went through and the suffering i continue to see missing my dad knowing that my cousins my aunts were killed many of my relatives and many of my friends children we grew up together being killed and i was trying to find the solution i was trying to say how can this do we have a future and how can this uh, be stopped from happening again and i was like every time wondering oh tomorrow it can happen again and that's that's what made me trying to go down and and think well what can we do what can i do as a person that that trying to find the solution that what made me go far and i realized that and went back to my village and i told my family you know what we have to for i told them the process i was in told them that i wanted to go in the military because i was doing it without telling them and um you know they said yeah it's good so they said yeah they understood the same the same way and we called the people we knew who had participated in the killings of of uh, our relatives and we invited them in this in the commemoration they came they gave testimonies and uh, they were just they finished their um prison sentences and they were back in the community we say and this is when i was about 18 because i was finishing my high school and we you know we started inviting them even today they they still come sorry they still come in our ceremonies um 2017 some of them sang in my brother's in my brother's wedding and we see them now as as people and i go back in that village my mom still lives there to visit them and lift up their their kids and <laughs> it's extraordinary i mean your forgiveness is extraordinary do you have any insights about how they live with the guilt of what they did yeah it's they live with shame they live with shame and the only healing they have and for unfortunately or fortunately is the the only healer they have is the survivors and those who have been able to confess and be open and 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 see what they have done was bad and try to go uh back and be brave enough to go back to the people they have um 
they have uh, killed their families and relatives, that those who tried to do so are uh, on a very good level of healing. But it's a shame. They live with shame. And again, uh, it's, it's, it's somebody, imagine having someone who has killed neighbors and, and they knew for a long time neighbors like 10, 12, 100, one person. It's, it's, it's a shame. And, and the only healing, like healing pillar is to come closer again to the survivors. And I think it's only thing that, that helped them to avoid the, to the living of shameful living a shameful life. Yeah. So you founded Be The Peace. Can you explain what the organization is and what it is that it does? Yes, yeah, so when I uh, finished uh, studies and got my master's and I said, well, how strategically can I contribute to the community of Rwanda, but also to the world? And my idea is still the same of like, I, I want, there are systems, but people become who they are because of the interaction, their interpersonal, uh, interpersonal relations, and that's what they transmit. So I saw, I said, look, it, whatever I will transmit to, to my neighbor or to my friend or to my kids, um, will depend on what I have in me. And I said, the best way to stop the intergenerational transmission of hate, that was the cause of the genocide against the Tutsi is to bring the generations together. And that's where the idea came from um, uh, to, to create Be The Peace. And Be The Peace in its sense is like you, it, it, it does the activities, brings generations together in Rwanda, um, young and old. And these young people are adults now and they, 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 they make up a generation of post-genocide um, born people and the people who are just really, really young in the genocide, those who were born from rape in the genocide, those who are from the people who killed and who accepted, who, or who, those who didn't accept that they did it, and the children of survivors and their parents. So we bring them together, we, we, we create activities that make them work together and we give them cows and they take care of the cows and give each other milk. And those are traditionally um, uh, the pact of friendship and we, we are kind of reviving their humanity that was lost in, during the genocide against the Tutsi and, and that's what we do and activities and, and it's working. It's working. We've reached out to uh, about 200 families in different districts in Rwanda and we hope to, to grow as funding will be available uh, and, and uh, yeah, because I've been doing it from my uh, 20% salary of whatever I do, I take 20% of that salary into that work. And it's been amazing. It's been amazing. They have built house for survivors. They, they now have cows. They work together. They have planted. They have made gardens for peace. And survivors and perpetrators and their, parents and their kids coming together and build it for each other vegetable gardens. It's been amazing. Yeah. And you've walked, you went on a really big walk. You've walked across Rwanda. Yeah, I mean, 2019, the 25th anniversary of remembering the genocide against the Tutsi, I said, look, I want to see what Rwanda looks like today. 
it was a kind of a performance piece. Uh, and then I walked for every day that the genocide took place. And I, I was walking in broken roads and, and uh, seeing the plants. And I was uh, sleeping at the churches, which, were, which are former killing sites. At schools, people were giving me food and people were joining from all over the country and all over the world. Uh, people joined from different continents and different countries. And I and another good friend of mine, I mean, I, I didn't know him. He volunteered to come and take photos was Dylan Cadre. And he came, we walked all across the country for 100 days doing some, we were also running some um uh, charitable uh, work and people were bringing food and we could give them to the disabled, um, the centers for disabled people, met survivors and perpetrators and we did some community work. It was wonderful, amazing, but tiring. <laughs> yeah. And I've heard you say that peace, peace is what you give. Yeah. Um, again, the idea for me is that we people, everyone holds the key for the peace they are looking for. I know in this world today that, that, that there are lots of wars and lots of um, killing and people, everyone is like, oh, I want peace, I want peace, I want peace. But when you go into the idea of peace, I've found that from those all those experiences that if you if if I can't be peaceful with my neighbors, if I can't be peaceful with myself, if I have gone to the path of becoming a killer today, I wouldn't be creating or seeding any peace. But then I say, peace is what you give, but not what you ask others to give you, because what you give is the key for what you're looking for. Uh, if you treat somebody as as, as, as a good and I, I believe no one is born uh, bad I believe people become and if we can learn to love we can also if we can learn to hate why not learning to, to, to love and why do we give hateful thoughts of racism of you know political parties and everything that comes in and create conflict why, why don't we give to our kids to our employees to our leaders to our citizens we we lead good thing like good examples kindness and the joy we live in our heart that's what we have to spread and that's what uh, i mean when i say peace is what you give and uh whatever we do whatever i do in the organization i try to to remind people that we are the key and the key is a lot when i do performances everyone who comes to performance give them the key uh, and, and that's, that's to remind them that we all are the key. The systems are there, but we create the system and we are the key for the peace we're looking for. So you've written a book about your life and your journey. What's your next creative project? <laughs> yeah, um, well, my memoir is going to go out soon and, and it's good that my message will go out. My next project, I have different projects and long-term projects. And uh, one, I've bought land in Rwanda, very close to the two churches that are uh, memorials now where people were killed. And I want to build a peace center there that will help to um, 
to tell the stories and, and be a place for people to come in the Great Lakes region to do research, to broadcast what they want to tell the world and people can come there and be able to tell their stories. That's the peace center I'm looking forward to build. And, uh, you know, it's very, very good, very good uh, place close to the memorials, but close to the lake. So it's good, but um, very. I'm, I'm about to take on another project, and I do talks and lectures and everything. And and and, but my project is I'm tr I'm planning to do a hundred day in the darkness, and my hundred day in darkness is 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 a project that you know I've been thinking people think that the light or the lights of life they're looking for is somewhere else or comes from the sun or, or anything. But the darkness we live in, it's not the darkness we see from the sun or what, but it's the darkness within the heart. And the light has to come from there. So, the, the, and I want to invite people who have not been able to tell their story and thinking, oh, they live in darkness. No, there's light. And the light is only in our heart. And what we want, the life we want to live is the light we create. So I'm not sure where I will pass and I'm, trying to find my I will, I will, I'm not sure where I will do my my 100 day in darkness or residency I'm still planning to and reaching out to different people and different museums and different studios to host me so I'm still wondering where it might be in Rwanda or somewhere else but that's a, a upcoming project apart um yeah apart from other uh, project and performance I do and um yeah, and, and I, I, I have an, an ongoing project of inviting people to write letters of forgiveness to whoever or whatever they think has, you know, needs or, yeah, needs peace from them. And that's what uh, I'm inviting. It's ongoing. So, yeah. Well, Ipo, you radiate joy and inner peace and you spread love wherever you go. It's been wonderful having you at Yale. And wish you all the best for the future. Thank you very much, Emma, and um, uh, thank you for the Ward Fellow uh, program. It's a great, great, great opportunity for me to, you know, to extend what I, I believe in, and uh, hopefully, I'm I'm gonna hang around <laughs> with Yale for a long time. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>